0: Many of us ever know what it is to become the
1: perfect version of ourselves? This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. Annyeonghaseyo, Superhumans. It's Boomer Anderson here, and we're back with another episode of the Decoding Superhuman podcast. Now, depending on when you're listening to this, it's either January or whatever month you're in, but Happy New Year. And Based on that introduction, you may actually guess what one of my personal OKRs are for the year. Anyways, today we've brought on another expert to separate bite-sized pieces of actionable information that you can use in your everyday nutrition life, that's the key topic today, to become a higher performer, to increase your physical or mental performance. And My guest today is Absolutely hilarious. You may have heard of him from his first documentary, Fathead, but Tom Naughton began his personal life as a writer and editor of Family Safety and Health magazine. In the many years since, he's both been a freelance writer, a stand-up comedian, and a software programmer. Fathead, that humorous documentary that I mentioned before, was about the lousy health advice handed down from official sources, and it's been seen on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, as well as television series in several different countries. Tom's speeches and other health related videos have been viewed by millions of people online. He now lives on a small hobby farm with his one wife, two daughters, two dogs, one cat, and dozens of chickens. Tom, I may follow your lead there. But what did we talk about today? Because, after all, this was a very fun episode for me. So, we talked about, of course, Fathead, the documentary. What is CSPI, the Center for Science and the Public Interest, and why they're actually a problem with regards to getting accurate food and nutrition information. We talked about the problem of BMI and metabolic syndrome. Is it the real epidemic? What's causing it? And why saturated fat may be the best Viagra out there. We get into what are the problems with observational studies, and what I love about Tom is if you're not familiar with observational studies and you're scared of this quote-unquote science world, well, he breaks it down into a way that makes it really easy to understand and frankly very fun. And of course, we talk about his new documentary, Fathead Kids. So you're going to want to check this out, and you're going to want to check out the all of the documentaries, Fathead and Fathead Kids, and the show notes for this one, which are are found at decodingsuperhuman.com fathead. Enjoy my episode with Tom Naughton. So we're going to try something new to start the new year. Before a sponsor, a regularly scheduled sponsor, I want to give a shout out to those listeners out there who give a 5-star rating on iTunes. This one came from DR Norman 1851 from the United States. And he says, "It doesn't matter if you listen to this 1 hour after it's posted or 1 year. You will get something out of each guest's expertise. This podcast is the only podcast I need in my queue on the topic of peak performance. Subscriber for life." Dr. Norman, 1851, this one goes out to you, my friend. Thank you so much. And to all you listeners out there, if you're willing to go out and give a five-star rating on iTunes, we may read it on the show. Have an absolutely epic day, superhumans, and on with the episode. The sponsor for today's podcast is Neurohacker Collective. The chairman, Jordan Greenhall, has been on the show to talk about one of my favorite topics and episodes to date, sovereignty. And the medical director has also been on the show to talk about unleashing your human potential through epigenetics. That's Dr. Daniel Stickler. But why do I love Neurohacker Collective so much? Well, frankly, it upgrades me. On a day-to-day basis, actually, I take their products five out of seven days of the week. Their original Qualia stack is something that I absolutely and still thoroughly enjoy. It's packed with over 40 premium brain nutrients to immediately enhance your focus, energy, mood, creativity, and all while supporting your health. Their new flagship nootropic, Qualia Mind, is a premium nootropic supplement that helps support mental performance and brain health. And frankly, with both products, I do not get the crashes that I commonly get with nootropics and other supplements. So I want you to go over to their website and check it out when you have a chance. It's neurohacker.com. And if you subscribe, you get 15% off by using the code BOOMER. If you want to just do a one time purchase, you get 10% off, again, using that code BOOMER. And while you're there, pick up their free foundational guide to neurohacking. It's definitely worth checking out. But please enjoy the show.
0: Tom, welcome to the show. Good morning. Happy to be here. I guess it's not morning for you, but I'm still happy to be here. <laughs>
1: You know, it's, uh, I've already had my coffee for the day, so it's okay. But Tom, you and I met through Jimmy Moore and, uh, he said some great things about you. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation, uh, given some of your work and a lot of the research that you're done, that you've done, I- I'm kind of curious what you think about some of these documentaries out there. Like, um, I guess the most recent one that comes to mind, like is what the health
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I didn't bother to see it. Because when these vegan propaganda movies come out, it's always the same stuff. And I've seen all that same stuff many, many, many times. Because if you have a blog, or you write a book, or you make a film that says it's uh, actually good for you to eat meat and eggs, you will hear from these people. They seem to think it's their mission in life to track you down and try to convince you that meat and eggs are going to kill you. So I've gotten very used to the type of uh, evidence. Please put evidence in air quotes that they throw at you. So (laughs) when What the Health came out, I thought, I'm not going to go sit through this same nonsense again. I did hear, of course, that one egg is as bad for you as five cigarettes. So I've thrown a challenge out there. No one's accepted it yet. I'll continue eating four eggs a day. You start smoking 20 cigarettes a day. We'll compare our health in 10 years.
1: I I, I would be curious who would take you up on that one. um... I was
0: hoping Dr. Neil Bernard would. I thought, well, let's let's just see you after smoking 20 cigarettes a day for 10 years. You tell me that my health's as bad as yours.
1: Is he the one who made the original claim?
0: Uh, No, it's just he's the, uh, I, I don't think he made the claim, maybe. Ed, but he's the head of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, an organization <laughs> mostly made not of physicians. And for them, responsible medicine means meat will kill you. Oh, the biases of this world. So let's talk about some of your work,
1: Tom, because I, you created possibly two of my favorite documentaries, uh, Fathead and Headed Kids. Do you mind just going through what inspired you to do this? And you know the new one is animation, right and I love that and it's made it very relatable to people. So do you mind just going through what kind of inspired you to go down this path?
0: Sure. I used to be a stand-up comic, and when my uh, older daughter got to be about two years old, I realized I needed to stop traveling around doing stand-up. Um, she didn't like daddy being gone. I didn't like being gone. So I was just kinda looking around for where am I gonna put my creative energy next. I started kicking around an idea for a series called In Defense of Common Sense, which would be common sense, but funny guy looks at issues of the day. I was planning to shoot a sample episode on how we treat fat people in America. During the course of researching that, I finally watched Supersize Me, which I'd been avoiding because I, I knew I would probably find it annoying, and I did. In fact, I found it so annoying that by the time I finished watching that, I said, I need to shoot a response to this, which led to me going on my own fast food diet, which led to me doing research into the health effects of food which was very eye-opening for me, because keep in mind, I'd already been shooting um, several sections of Fathead, and then when I realized just how bad the dietary advice that we've been given for the past almost 40 years is, it really changed the direction of the film, and it became uh, very much a film about why the dietary advice is wrong. So that that ultimately became Fathead. And then what led to the new one, um, when Fathead came out, and went to Netflix and Amazon Prime and drew a really big audience for the first time, I received a surprising number of emails from parents telling me that their kids love this, and my son's watched it six times, and he won't eat sugar anymore. You're the one who finally convinced him. And we heard similar comments from so many parents. My wife and I decided our next project is going to be targeted specifically at kids. I was delighted and surprised that so many kids seemed to like Fathead because I I wasn't trying to make a kid-friendly movie. But they liked it, I think, because of the humor and some of the animations. So we said, we're just going to make our next project targeted at kids. So first, we produced a book. Fathead Kids, stuff about diet and health. I wish I knew when I was your age. Uh, Very heavy on the illustrations. My wife drew more than 200 cartoons for it. As soon as we were done with that, we turned around and we took her artwork plus a whole lot more artwork and we turned it into an animated film. And that's the film, Fathead Kids.
1: First, I would love to hear just, you know, some perspectives on why you chose animation for the original film. And then I want to go specifically into uh, just some of the research that you did and some of the things that came out of the documentary, if you don't mind.
0: No, not Are we talking the original Fathead?
1: Yeah, the original Fathead. Okay. First. So
0: I was always a huge Monty Python fan. And <laughs> uh, and I really wanted Fathead to be humorous because Super Size Me is, is full of It. Notice I said it for any censors out there. It's full of Uh, it. You can, you can, you can go uncensored if you want. Oh, I probably shouldn't. I was a clean comedian, but you know, I've always kind of believed uh, you respond to humor with humor and Spurlock is an, he's a good entertainer. Super Size Me was kind of funny and it was entertaining and I wanted Fathead to be funny and entertaining and I'm a comedian. So I think that way anyway, so as far as getting across some of the concepts about how ridiculous Supersize Me is, how ridiculous people like the guy from CSPI are, how ridiculous our dietary advice is, I decided the the fun way to go about that in many cases would be to use those Monty Python style animations. So we found a kid who was fresh out of film school who could uh, could animate. I couldn't at the time. And we hired him. And he said, what kind of animation are you looking for? I said, I always enjoyed the Monty Python style. And he said, perfect. I love that. So so that's what we did.
1: All right. So I want to go into some of the things that you uncovered during your research, because we've talked a lot on this show about the diet fat hypothesis and why that's probably not, um, well, one, maybe a fraud. But one of the things you mentioned in the documentary is this concept of obesity really being an issue. Mm-hmm is obesity an actual issue today? And I guess you you mentioned BMI. And what are the problems that you see with BMI and how we we look at that today?
0: Okay, so is obesity an issue? Yes. All you have to do is have eyes and and look around. The, The issue that I brought up in fathead is that the numbers, whenever you're trying to get funding for something, It's just part of the game. You always wildly exaggerate the problem. There are far more obese people now than there used to be. But when you hear these figures like one third of Americans are obese, well, that's based on BMI, which is strictly a relationship between your height and your weight. And BMI tags an awful lot of people as obese simply because they are muscular. Tim Tebow is obese. Tom Cruise is obese. George Clooney is overweight, according to the BMI way of of measuring things. Now, they do it that way because they're not going to drag everybody into a doctor's office and put fat calipers on them and measure what their actual body fat is. What you care about is, do I have too much body fat? So the second way, apparently, as the doctor in fathead informed me, of saying you're obese is if your body fat is over 30%. But just saying anyone with a BMI of 30 is uh, obese is kind of a ridiculous way of, of measuring it.
1: Another thing that you bring up, and this is actually in the new documentary, is this concept of losing weight. And I love the way you presented this as the piggy bank theory. And Do you mind just talking a little bit about why the 3,500 calories in a a pound and why sort of the calorie, I guess, myth, if you will, is exactly that a myth?
0: Sure. So if you put a pound of fat in something called a calorimeter um, and you burn it, it will produce 3,500 calories of heat. A calorie is a measure of heat. It's like saying a British thermal unit. So because of that, it created this stupidly simple and very wrong theory that if you just, oh, I don't know, cut 500 calories per day out of your diet, that adds up to 3,500 in a week, and therefore you automatically lose a pound a week, which makes it sound so stupidly simple that then anyone who's overweight, you're thinking, what, you're not willing to just cut 500 calories per day, or you're not willing to eat a pound of butter or or, uh, eat one less pat of butter in order to lose 20 pounds a year, they come up with all these equations, all of those ignore the fact that your body is highly opinionated about how much fat it's going to maintain based on all kinds of hormonal factors. And if your body is currently receiving hormonal instructions to be fat, and you eat a little less, your body's gonna say, oh, I can handle that, and it will slow your metabolism down to meet your new calorie intake. There, th- that's why people like my wife, and who I you know, I bring this up in the film, there are people like my wife who could eat an extra thousand calories a day, and they don't gain weight, because again, their body's opinionated about how fat it's supposed to be. When they eat more, they just burn more. Their, their body just raises their metabolism. So the way we explain this in the film, we turn the body into a biological starship called the Nautilus and we show how the crew works. Well, the uh, crew member responsible for how fat are you going to be is the ship's engineer, Marty Metabolism, for some reason has a Scottish accent. <laughs> and you see him at his control board and for people who are, whose bodies are geared to not gain weight, When the extra food comes in, you just see him grab the metabolism lever and raise it, and the ship starts burning more energy. Whereas when people say, oh, I need to lose weight, so I'm going to starve myself, he doesn't say, oh, gosh, they want to look better in a swimsuit, so I'm just going to go along with this. He sees a fuel shortage. So he gets to his control board, and he starts slowing down how much energy the ship is burning. He turns off the rebuilding and repair because that's not necessary right now. We don't want to starve to death. So by going with this stupidly simple mathematical equation that has nothing to do with real biology, we basically tell people it's their fault if they're overweight because, gosh, they just won't cut a few hundred calories out of their diet per day. It just doesn't work that way.
1: And so this kind of explains a little bit on why calorie restriction although there are some studies that kind of point towards it being helpful towards longevity uh, calorie restriction just makes you feel like crap right
0: yeah and also on on the on the studies that point toward it being beneficial for longevity I think it's a possibility that it's not so much restricting calories; it's restricting, it's lowering your blood sugar. And if you are eating a lot of carbohydrate dense foods, which are constantly raising your blood sugar, and then you you cut your calories, well, you're also cutting the carbohydrate dense foods. Your blood sugar is going to go down, and you're going to be doing less damage. Now, there have been animal studies, and I don't think humans are just big animals, but there have been animal studies where they achieve the same results, not by restricting calories, but just by restricting carbohydrate intake. So I'm not 100% convinced it's just restricting calories.
1: Interesting. I've always been a, a big proponent of tracking of blood sugar because I do think that there is a definitely a component of longevity in blood glucose, but that's That's very interesting to hear. Now, let's talk about fat because fat, thank you Ansel Keys, has kind of been demonized and luckily for people, uh, you know, people like yourself, Jimmy, and a few others have been big proponents of working fat back into the diet. But do you mind just talking a little bit about what would happen if we stopped eating fat? Because I've got a few vegan haters out there who have commented on the blogs and have basically have said that, you know, we don't really need this fat, but do you mind just touching on what would happen if we stopped eating fat tomorrow?
0: Well, I, I'd suggest the haters go get a textbook and look up the term essential fatty acids. <laughs> and they're called essential fatty acids because you will get sick and die without them. And essential are, the essential fatty acids are the ones that you cannot produce in your body. You have to ingest them we have to have a certain amount of fat in order to be healthy and in fact to live and if you want, went on a 100 percent fat-free diet you would get sick in fairly short order
1: now how much you mentioned this in the documentary because cholesterol is a key component of our brain right can you function optimally on a lower fat diet because
0: fat's a key component of cholesterol lower fat probably um, but you couldn't go fat-free, mm-hmm. and you really don't need to go cholesterol-free. Now, your body will produce cholesterol if you don't ingest it, which ought to tell people, is this really a dangerous substance? It's so dangerous that your body will produce it even if you don't eat any. Uh, every Almost every cell in your body requires cholesterol in order to function. I don't see any reason to cut back on cholesterol. First off, it's been shown by many people, interestingly, including Ansel Keys, that the amount of cholesterol you consume has very little to do with how much cholesterol is in your blood.
1: Most of it's produced in the liver, right?
0: Yeah, and you, know, you can uh, lower your cholesterol somewhat by consuming less saturated fat, but the shift for most people is really not in a good direction. You end up lowering your HDL the so-called good cholesterol. And your LDL, you end up making smaller, denser LDL, which is exactly the opposite of what you want. You want your LDL to be large and fluffy. And you achieve that by eating good fats. It does matter which kind of fats you eat by eating good fats and by cutting down on the simple carbs.
1: Let's talk about those good fats for a second, because uh, I do think that's worth spending time on. When you say good fats, which ones are you referring to there, Tom?
0: So some of the early studies where they said saturated fat is bad for you and they thought they had evidence proving that it was, back in those days, they really did not distinguish between saturated fat and trans fats. Saturated fats are natural fats. Trans fats are man-made fats where they take a vegetable oil and they saturate it going through this complicated chemical process, it's where we got things like Crisco. So they were calling those saturated fats. They are in fact saturated, but they are not the same as saturated fat that you would get from cream or butter or beef tallow or whatever. The natural saturated fats are not only not harmful, they're beneficial. But when you ingest things like the old Crisco or basically any of these horrid margarines that are made from quote unquote vegetable oils, which folks, they're not vegetable oils, they're seed oils. (laughs) And the oil has to be extracted with a chemical called hexane. Go to YouTube and find a video called how canola oil is made. Prepare to be horrified and then ask, do you really want this stuff in your body? Yes, if you were eating a bunch of bad fats and then you said, I'm going to go on a low-fat diet, well, I suppose you'd benefit because you're not poisoning yourself anymore. But if you're eating natural fats, the ones created by God and Mother Nature, however you want to look at it, animal fats, uh, true vegetable fats like olive oil, avocado oil, etc., fats that you can just basically squeeze and get fat out of it, those are good for you. Most of the fats that are called vegetable oils now only exist and cannot exist without industrial processing. They've only existed for maybe a little over 100 years now. They require chemical and industrial processing. You put those in your body, this stuff that never existed in nature that your ancestors never ate, you put that in your body and your body says, what the bleep is this? So- I I love
1: this because when we start talking about things like Crisco, I, I note that the Philadelphia Police Department used this when the Eagles won the Super Bowl in terms of Yeah, weight. so people wouldn't climb the poles. <laughs> Seems like the most useful thing for Crisco for me. Um, Absolutely. But in terms of – one of the things you mentioned in the film is, and you mentioned earlier is CSPI. Do you mind talking about these people because they've had uh, a, well a pronoun they've tried to make themselves pretty well known. And- well, they are very well known. <laughs> exactly. So do you mind
0: just talking about the CSPI and why? Sure. So CSPI stands for the Center for Science in the Public Interest. And the only problem with that is what they do is really not in the public interest, and also the positions they take have very little to do with science. They are a bunch of vegetarian ad, uh, advocates. And so they basically cherry pick the science, mostly observational studies, to try to promote the idea that saturated fat and cholesterol are bad for you. And they do this in the way that most of the vegetarian and vegan advocates do it. I believe they start with a moral position, not a scientific position. They start with a moral position, which is we don't want you killing and eating animals. Therefore, we will cherry pick whatever science we can find to convince you that it's bad for you. And I think they have themselves convinced, because if you've taken a moral position that eating animals is immoral, well, then it kind of seems like there should be some sort of punishment for that. And I mean, to me, it's a substitute religion. And the punishment is it's going to ruin your health. So they will cheerfully ignore all the evidence that they're wrong, and promote this idea that animal fats are bad for you. And the reason I say these people are not operating in the public interest, they, well, here's all you need to know. They, some years ago, sued restaurants for using trans fats to fry you know, potatoes and french fries and things like that. The reason the restaurants were using trans fats is that earlier, CSPI had basically harassed them into giving up frying in in lard and tallow, and they told them to use trans fats because CSPI, the supposed scientists, had declared trans fats a safe alternative to animal fats. They put trans fats into the food supply. Later, when they realized trans fats not only were not good for us, but they were actually quite harmful, it's like they had some sort of amnesia, that they were the ones largely responsible for this, and then they sued restaurants for using them. That, in a nutshell, is the Center for Science in the Public Interest.
1: Oh, it sounds like uh, we have somebody to point the finger at when it comes to you know the heart disease epidemic and those kind of things, but that's, that's just crazy, right? So let's, let's double-click on those observational studies, because for some people who haven't dug through a scientific report before. Do you mind explaining why these uh, either have or do not have value uh, in terms of pointing towards um, a conclusion?
0: Sure, and I'll, I'll start with a uh, conclusion that a guy named John Ioannidis came to. He's a doctor and mathematician who's looked at research going back many, many years. And according to his studies, observational studies have turned out, the conclusions drawn from observational studies have turned out to be wrong 80% of the time. So when you see an observational study and when you see headlines based on observational studies, which we'll get into in a minute, the first thing you should say to yourself is, okay, a study which is far more likely to be wrong than right says XYZ. What it says is this is associated with that. Uh, bacon is associated with colon cancer. So they jump to the conclusion that bacon must cause colon cancer. The problem is, well, there are several problems, but one, when they determine what is associated with what, they base those on what are called food recall surveys, where they try to determine what people have been eating for several years by giving them a survey. In the last year, how many servings of this did you eat? I've looked at those things. They're a joke. In fact, one company I worked at decided for whatever reason to participate in one of these studies that we were given a food recall survey. And it's honestly, it's things like in the last year, how many servings of broccoli have you had? In the last year, how many servings of beef have you had? And then in parentheses, it will say, a serving of beef is four ounces. We were looking at these things. Tom Keen, remember that? No, and we were laughing ourselves silly. We're like, who do they think actually remembers this? But we were told to do it, so we just filled it out and made it up and turned it in. So first off, the data, and and, and it's been shown when you look at, at, according to one of these food surveys, what people say they do and don't eat, some people would be eating something like 6,000 calories per day. Some people who are overweight would, according to the food survey, be eating like 1,000 calories a day. So they're wildly inaccurate on the data in the first place. Second, let's suppose that they were accurate. Let's suppose they could honestly tell what people have been eating. That still does not make the conclusions valid because they will come up with something like people who eat processed meat are more likely to be diabetic. Let's say they come up with that. Well, just because A is linked to B, it doesn't mean A is causing B. Often, A and B are, in fact, linked to C. So for the example I just gave, processed meat. Well, the biggest sources of processed meat in the American diet are foods like pizza, burritos, deli sandwiches, etc., etc. which means the people who eat a lot of processed meat are also eating a lot of white flour. So if we say processed meat is associated with diabetes, The processed meat might not have anything to do with it. It might just be a marker for people who eat a lot of white flour. That happens in observational studies all the time.
1: All right. So basically, the CSPI has found a way to essentially come up with, rather than following a scientific method and coming up with a question and forming a hypothesis, they've already come up with their conclusion and used observational studies to back into... Uh, the rationale for this conclusion. Do I have that right?
0: Yes, and it's not just CSPI. They're certainly one of the worst offenders, but the American Heart Association has done this. The USDA did that in their dietary guidelines. A lot of people who should know better are pointing to these observational studies as their quote-unquote proof. Here's the other problem with observational studies. Literally millions of these things have been done. And for every conclusion you find in an observational study, I can probably dig up an observational study that came to the opposite conclusion. In fact, the guy I mentioned earlier, Dr. John Younedes, he wrote an article, tongue in cheek, where they took the common ingredients from a cookbook and then they looked for observational studies. And guess what? They found almost every common ingredient in a cookbook is associated with a higher rate of cancer and also with a lower rate of cancer, just dependent on which observational study you dug up. Begs the question, why observational
1: studies get funding? And I would love to hear your opinion on that. And then
0: when you're doing your own research, what's sort of the gold standard that you look for? So the reason there are so many observational studies is that they're relatively inexpensive and easy to conduct. You send out that food survey, and then you look at people's medical records, and then you divide people into however many groups you want to divide them into, two, three, four groups, who ate the most broccoli, and then look at their health records, okay, who had the most or the least cancer. So those studies can be done on a somewhat limited budget uh, in order to do, in order to really truly say one thing causes the other, you have to do what's called a clinical study, which is where you have to take two large groups, at least two large groups, randomize them. In other words, those people have to be matched, uh, relatively balanced for, for age, race, income, health habits, et cetera, et cetera. Then you have to make one change in one group, such as this group is going to switch from white flour to whole wheat flour or whatever, whatever the change is that you're, you're trying to measure. Then you have to make sure they actually stick to that diet, which is very difficult. And to really, really, truly make sure 100% that they stuck to the diet, you basically have to lock them in a, in a hospital and feed them their meals. And in order to, to demonstrate that something had an actual effect, that has to go on for a long time. So it's extremely difficult to get a large randomized group of people, lock them in a hospital, feed them their meals, have that go on for a period of years, and then check what their health results were. So clinical studies are difficult and very expensive to do. So very few of them are done.
1: And it's also it begs the question whether or not that would simulate real life, right? Because it's the same thing to me as like a polysomography test where you go into a sleep lab and you have all of this gear on you and you're not actually sleeping in your bed. And they're
0: like, let's
1: draw some conclusions on how you're sleeping.
0: It just, yeah, it, it, exactly. In fact, that's the problem I have with uh, some of the calorie freaks out there. They'll say, well, we took people, we locked them in a metabolic ward and we fed them X number of calories. And, you know, the people who ate fewer calories lost more weight, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's true. But it's kind of like saying, we took a group of alcoholics and we locked them in a hospital, and we only gave them two drinks a day, and they remained sober, therefore, the cause of alcoholism is drinking too much. No, the (laughs) alcoholism, the cause is not drinking too much. Drinking too much is the result of alcoholism. The cause is something else. So it's the same thing when people eat too much, they're fat because they eat too much no they're fat because their body is under a command to get fatter the result is they eat more so yeah these things have nothing to do with with real life and if i hear one more person say no fat people ever walked out of a prison camp i will uh, commit some sort of violence because no healthy people walked out of a prison camp and did you notice that in order to get people to starve themselves into being thin they had to be in a prison camp. It has nothing to do with real life. (laughs) I I can't imagine people actually saying that. That's pretty crazy. Happens all the time. If you're arguing about the calorie thing, no, it's all about calories. No fat people ever walked out of a prison camp. It's like, oh my God. Okay. I'm going to ask you
1: here in a second about common tips on ways people can actually eat healthy and have sort of a sustainable thing that's easy to adhere to. But before we get to that, in the documentary, you talk about man boobs. And because this is a very common fear among, frankly, some of my clients, but also people listening to this podcast, what's the origin of man
0: boobs and how do we avoid them? Okay, so I'm going to go back to the analogy that we used in the film of the spaceship and the spaceship has building crews and the building crews receive instructions on what kind of ship they're supposed to build. Those instructions arrive in the form of hormones. In fact, we explain everything, almost everything in in the film that your ship is constantly receiving messengers in the form of hormones. Those hormones trigger programs. Uh, I'm a programmer. So I happen to like that analogy. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's, it's, it's hormones that tell your body what to do. So man boobs are the result of your testosterone, which is the man hormone, being altered, switched into estrogen, which is the female hormone. So when your body sees the female hormone or, or more of the female hormone than should be there, it concludes, because this is the program it triggers, we are supposed to build boobs on this ship because I see female hormones. So the root cause is too much estrogen. What causes too much estrogen, uh, I've heard a couple different theories on this, but the one that seems to be the most backed up by the evidence is that when you begin accumulating fat in your liver, fat in your liver, what's called visceral fat, uh, it actually takes testosterone. And through the action of enzymes, I believe this particular enzyme is called aromatase, it converts the testosterone into estrogen. So as you begin to build up fat in your liver, your testosterone is being converted to estrogen, then your body sees estrogen and says, Oh, estrogen, we're supposed to build boobs.
1: Oh, That's brilliant. Okay. Um, how do and I guess then how do we avoid that? Like what, what are, as a man, what are the foods that we should be intaking or not intaking
0: in order to? Well, so obviously we want to avoid fat in the liver. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Fructose is probably the most common cause of building up fat in your liver. Um, When you eat glucose, if you eat too much glucose, you can raise your blood sugar, your serum glucose, which is not a good thing. But fructose actually does not turn into blood sugar fructose, which is sugar, which is the it's the it's the type of carbohydrate that tastes sweet. When you ingest too much fructose, more fructose than your body can can use at the time, it goes to the liver and it turns into fat. So the research on that is pretty clear. Too much fructose, you get liver fat. There are also scientists who believe and I I think the evidence is pretty strong that the wrong kinds of vegetable oils. Will cause insulin resistance and cause fat to build up in the liver. So, and again, those aren't vegetable oils; they're seed oils. So, I would say sugar, absolutely, possibly also those horrid uh, oils, industrial oils that we're we're told are good for us. Those might build up fat in the liver as well. Oh, and by the way, if you drink a lot of alcohol, that'll do it. <laughs> Minor detail. So, Tom, I have to ask: Did you have uh, orange juice with breakfast today? Absolutely not. I do not. First off, I don't eat much fruit besides berries. And second, uh, because I kind of look at these things from a ancestral health standpoint or a paleo standpoint, did my Irish ancestors import oranges into Ireland in the winter? No. And if they did come across an orange, would they have stuck it in a juicer and gotten rid of all the fiber and just enjoyed all that yummy fructose? No. So orange juice, this supposed healthy breakfast drink, you might as well be drinking Coca-Cola with a little vitamin C in it. A
1: little vitamin C, a little added sugar just to make it even more sweet than it already Mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a recipe for a crash, but also it sounds like for fatty liver as well.
0: So Yeah, I see parents giving their kids these boxes of apple juice and, you know, I, I just shake my head. I mean, I don't say anything to other people about what they feed their kids, but I do grind my teeth sometimes.
1: Yeah, it's pretty hard to hold. For me, it's a little hard to hold back sometimes,
0: but it's, it's kind of shocking. Well, and that's why we did the book and the film. I mean, I'm not going to pester people. Uh, I I mind my own business, but I will absolutely write a a book and produce a film saying, here's what these things do to your health and hope it catches on and hope we can educate people that way.
1: So on that, what are some basic tips that we can do for those who have families uh, who may have interest in teaching their kids to eat well? What are some basic tips that you would provide to them?
0: So I try to make this relatively simple because I believe you can drive yourself nuts trying to make your diet perfect. I'm a big believer that perfection is the enemy of good. And most kids do not need to be on a perfect diet. They don't have to get all their vegetables from a barefoot hippie farmer who only takes a bath on Saturday night and lives within 25 miles. I mean, If you want to do that stuff, that's great. But really what you need to do is have a good diet. Good to me means you avoid the foods that are actually causing the damage. And I think that comes down to three simple things. First and foremost, give up sugar. You don't need it. Your paleo ancestors didn't eat it. It produces fatty liver. It rots your teeth. Give up the sugar. The second thing is to give up all these refined grains we eat these days. There's some debate out there about ancient grains that were properly soaked and sprouted. Were they good food? Were they bad food? Were they just okay food? I don't think those were ever health food, but they might have been okay. But that's not the grains we eat today. The grains we eat today, especially wheat, are relatively modern grains. They were created in a laboratory to produce a, a very large yield per acre, but they are not Good for you, and then almost all the grains we eat these days have been refined, which means the fiber and the cells are stripped away. Even if it's called whole wheat, what that means is they still send it through the processing, they stripped away the fiber and broke the cells, and then they sprinkle a little fiber back in and they call it whole wheat. But when you eat those refined grains and they hit your system, all hell breaks loose not just because of your blood sugar going up, but those types of grains. Will get in and they will poke holes in your digestive system, and allow toxins into your system that should never be there. And then you will get all kinds of autoimmune reactions. I know I'm talking really fast, but I'm just trying to get the idea no, across.
1: And thank you, thank you so much for saying that because I've been trying to synthesize that in very uh, short sentences for a while now, and that is fantastic. You basically explain leaky gut in a nutshell. That was
0: right. So that's leaky gut. And that comes from eating those refined grains, especially modern grains. And most of what people eat these days are the modern grains. So give up the sugar, give up the refined grains. I say give up grains completely if you want to be safe. Yeah, me too. Uh and finally, give up those god-awful industrial oils that are called vegetable oils, because those are not natural, they promote inflammation. Inflammation probably leads to insulin resistance. And even if it doesn't, that's still up in the air, does it cause insulin resistance? But even if it doesn't, inflammation causes all kinds of other health issues that you don't wanna deal with. Give up the sugar, give up the refined grains, give up those god-awful vegetable oils, go back to eating natural fats. In my humble opinion, if you just do those three things, you've already gotten 80 to 90% of the benefits of switching your diet. And then if you want to tinker with that last 20 or 10% by going organic and grass fed and all that, that's great. But first and foremost, you just got to stop the damage.
1: This is great. And by the way, on the vegetable oils thing, just to name them, we're talking like canola, which is rapeseed oil and Crisco and all those things that we talked about before, right?
0: Yeah. So look at the labels and if you see soybean oil, corn oil, cottonseed oil, canola oil, which is by the way, going to be in most of the processed foods that you find, put that package back, back on the shelf and walk away because that is food that is going to cause damage. Mm. And
1: if for those listening out there, if they want a lot more on the science behind this, there's a great book called Deep Nutrition by uh, Catherine Shanahan, I believe, which is a, a good book to delve into this. But also, I know you get into this on in the documentaries as well, Tom. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, this has been extremely enlightening. I want to go into what is the final four questions with you now in terms of, these are questions that I ask everyone that comes on the show. So I'm
0: curious for you, what is health? Well, I'd say the simple definition of health is the absence of disease. To me, that's health. If, if your body's not breaking down, if you're not diseased, you are probably healthy. And if you want to go beyond that, it's do you feel good? Do you have energy? Excellent. How do you increase your focus? I've actually found that switching to a good diet kind of automatically increased my my focus. You know, once you get off that blood sugar roller coaster that you get from eating all the carbs and the processed foods, you you tend to just your brain tends to keep a nice steady energy supply, which for me makes it easy to focus. And I remember back in the day when I thought you know the high carb diet was uh, and grape nuts and orange juice and all that were good for you. I remember going through mornings where I was thinking, geez, I just can't think today. Well, in retrospect, my blood sugar was dropping. I just didn't realize it at the time. Also, if you eat the good fats, you eat the eggs with the yolks and you eat the natural animal fats, your brain is 70% fat. Cholesterol is a big part of your brain synapses. So if you're eating the good fats and the good cholesterol, I think you maintain a healthy brain and I think that helps you focus.
1: What's your favorite book on high performance?
0: Wow, I read so many books. That would be a difficult one to pin down.
1: You can give a few if you want to.
0: All right. I like um, The Four Hour Workweek. I like The Four Hour Body. I like uh, Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. I found that to be a big influence on me at the time that I read it. I, I would mention those. Mm-hmm.
1: And what about, if you don't mind me asking, what what about Awaken the Giant Within did you enjoy?
0: I like the fact that Tony Robbins does not just give you a big pep talk and think that that's going to last you for life. He actually kind of explains the way our mind works, the way we are geared to seek pleasure and avoid pain, and a lot of what holds us back is from seeking uh, avoiding the temporary pain of doing the work we ought to do for the... Temporary pleasure of, you know, doing whatever watching, uh, you know, a rerun of Cheers for the sixth time. And then he explains how you can switch those in your mind exercises you can do so that you begin to associate doing what you should be doing with pleasure and you begin to associate wasting your time with pain. And that's just one example. He gives a lot of those. I find his techniques actually do produce change as opposed to just getting temporarily psyched up and and then having that fade.
1: Awesome. And Tom, finally, where can people find out more about you and check out the the documentaries?
0: So the easy way to see what the book and the documentaries are about is to go to www.fatheadkidsmovie.com. And then to follow the other work I do, I I still keep a pretty active blog going uh, and write about subjects mostly related to diet and health, sometimes to the politics of diet and health. That would be fathead-movie.com. And also I'm on Twitter at, uh, it's at Tom D. Naughton for Twitter.
1: Perfect. We'll link to all of this in the show notes. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been an absolute pleasure hysterical pleasure for me. It's been fun and thank you for educating us all.
0: It was fun for me too. Thanks for having me on.
1: To all the superhumans out there listening, have an absolutely epic day. Superhumans, before you go, can I ask two favors? Did you enjoy that episode? If so, can you send me an email at podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com? Provide any feedback, positive or negative. I would love to hear from you. And for those of you who have really taken advantage of that, You know I respond to each email. Secondly, if you did enjoy the episode, can you head on over to iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, any one of your favorite podcast listening platforms and give Decoding Superhuman a five-star rating. It would really be appreciated. And then finally, for those of you who are looking at taking an informed approach to health, head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com. Check out what we have going on over there. And if you want to schedule a free 15-minute discovery call with me, you're going to have that option. Superhumans, have an absolutely epic day. And remember, as always, choose health.